You've hit play on The Screen Companion, a show about making your viewing time count. Anime in all its forms. I don't like most of it, and at best, I grit my teeth and get through it if I'm in a group situation and everybody wants to watch anime. I'll sit there politely, but inside I'm pretending I'm watching something else. However, to balance my strong negative feelings toward it, my guest Andrew, I think it's safe to say, is well enamored with the genre, which is specifically anime films. So the first movie today is Perfect Blue from 1997. Uh, It's the story of Mima, an up-and-coming pop singer who pivots into acting to evolve her public image. Between the pressure of reinventing herself and the dangerous attention of a deranged fan, the line separating fiction from reality blurs sending Mima down a rabbit hole of confusion, paranoia, and obsession. Andrew, what are the tropes you see in this movie that you see in a lot of anime? There is that one sequence where, like, I mean, there's an overabundance of blood for certain injuries, for sure, which I think is kind of like something you see in a lot of animes, but... Is it a trope or just kind of like a stylistic thing that's kind of across the genre for the most part? I think blood in animation is usually over the top anyways. It takes place in Japan, so of course it's going to look what we might consider to be stereotypical, but that's just, you know, I don't know. Did you, Frank? If I were to talk about a trope, there's that sort of femme fatale hidden within a cute, character dealing with trying to become an actress and doing some lascivious scenes we start to wonder what her her mindset is and if she's capable of killing some people that that die throughout this movie i mean i guess you can call that a trope it's just um is it a trope if it's like a central point in the movie though because it's not that you're you're not just wondering if she's this, you know, horrible, violent character. It's that, like, the movie itself, like, the way it is stylized and edited and shot and animated is specifically to throw you for a loop and keep you guessing as to what reality is. It's a movie that I feel like on one view, you won't get it 100%. Like, I didn't really get it until, like, my second viewing. It's short, but so much stuff happens, and it just throws you for a loop. So I think the femme fatale and a cute, you know, yeah, I mean, that that is anime. Like, they're almost all cute girls. But, I mean, you can say that with, like, Hollywood movies. I mean, they're, they're not going to get, like, some uggo off the streets to play the femme fatale. They get, you know, that's a classic trope across everything. I just think that with the anime thing, it's because... We think of, you know, cute anime girls, but this one's more of, it doesn't look like a children's thing. It looks like it's meant for a more adult audience, the way it's animated. Oh, yeah, and I appreciate that about the movie. 
But actually, it, it made me think about the purpose of making something animated versus live action. As much as I liked the style of Perfect Blue, so much of it, I was thinking, how is this doing it better or in a unique fashion from what they could achieve if they did it live action? Um, I would say that the scenes where um, Mima sees herself or sees that pop idol version of herself that's kind of the ghostly figure... I mean, you could do that live action, but it might look bad with the CG. There are things in the movie that if you were to do it live action, you would have to computer animate it, specifically the double things. And you can always tell with an animated flick, there is no real suspension of disbelief because you already know you're watching a cartoon. So you already know what you're seeing isn't real. You're just watching it for the visuals and the story. You know, Miba being chased or chasing her ghostly figure it's just more believable because i don't have to worry about possibly telling that oh that's a green screen or oh you know there's a stunt double because they didn't want to animate this person or whatever it's just you know it's all there they can just animate the same person going back to what you were saying about this movie it gets better with extra viewings and that you can understand more about it after the second or third watch. I felt like this movie rode the line in a few spots where I was getting a little frustrated by the notion of what's real, what isn't, what's an hallucination. Because again, Mima's a character who seems like she's a little stressed out by making her transition from pop idol to actress. It made a connection in my mind with something like American Psycho, where there are parts of that movie that you can't be sure of the narrator. Is it an unreliable narrator situation? And I found it frustrating, but then the movie, by the end of it, firms up enough that there's still, I feel, a couple of interpretations you could give this movie, but there's enough going on that you can come to your own conclusion and feel like there's enough in the movie to support that and make you feel like you've watched a story from beginning to end. Yeah, yeah, it definitely has the resolution so you know what's going on. It doesn't um, leave you hanging. You know, and it does have kind of a false ending at one point where you're kind of like, oh, they're wrapping everything up really nicely and then it cuts to something else where you're like, oh, the story's not done yet. And I really, yeah, I think Perfect Blue is, it's not something I would recommend necessarily for the faint of heart. Um, I personally consider it one of the best anime movies I've, I have ever seen. It, it's really up there. In your uh, experience with anime, around where in your timeline does your first viewing of Perfect Blue land? Maybe like, oh God, like 10, 12 years ago. It was the beginning of me looking for more anime to watch because in high school I kind of had like a lull and so getting into college really the only anime that I had seen were like episodes of Dragon Ball Z and you know a couple episodes of Sailor Moon and Pokemon and the series Gundam Wing. Mm -hmm. Other than that I hadn't watched a whole lot and I remember at one point 
it was like when I was going to Cerritos College, I just I was watching a new movie almost every night for like a couple years. And I went on an anime kick in my early 20s where I just kind of I, I legitimately Googled like best anime movies ever or something like that. And just kind of followed the list and watched what I could. Perfect Blue was something I had to pirate initially. And I'm, I'm glad I did, though, because it was just um, it was just really, really good. You know, and people are saying, like, oh, it's a great psychological thriller. And then I just saw it for the second time just a few years ago because it was it was re-released in theaters. Um, and then I watched it maybe like a year or so ago for the third time. I have to say in the constant struggle between theaters and watching movies at home, that is definitely something people can do to extend the enjoyment of their favorites. There is absolutely a difference going to a theater and seeing it on that type of screen with the sound setup, if it's a good sound setup. So that just warms my heart to hear you going for, for the theater in that case. I still love going to the theater. I don't go as often as I used to, but my early college years for about like, oh gosh, maybe for five, seven, eight years, there was a stretch of time I went to the movies almost every week for like a year or so. You could tell I had no life for like quite a while, but that's what I wanted to do. Is just I was like, oh, you know, now that I'm, I, I, I have more free time, you know, I don't have to. Because I didn't have to, like, you know, wake up early for school anymore. So I would be up till, like, 2, 3 in the morning consistently just watching a movie or something. And, uh, yeah, it was great. I would never have thought, growing up, going to the theater with my dad about once a week, and, yeah, renting stuff, watching it at home, that I would ever slow down and run out of stuff that I would actively want to watch. And yet, here I am now. I haven't seen a movie in a theater since, you know, 2019. I mean, going back to talking about live action versus animated, isn't it nuts? We have yet to get a full-blown, big-budget Marvel movie that's animated. I don't think so. I mean, don't you think it would lend itself pretty well? I mean, to some to some extent, Into the Spider-Verse is the example of that, but it's just that it's not technically part of the MCU. That's the example of what it could be if they took some of these properties and animated them. It could be, but also, you look at Spider-Verse, it's still pretty much a family movie. In terms of animation, you know, one of the big things with, you know, Western versus anime is for us it's either a kid's property or it's an adult like a kind of like an adult comedy like the simpsons or it could be something raunchy like um family guy or you know south park or something i mean amazon has that show invincible which surprises me because it's a western studio doing a straightforward adult animation that's not exactly a niche thing because I know that Warner Brothers does do animated comic book. They do animated superhero movies as well. But it's not like they get theatrical releases or anything. You know, they're PG-13 or R-rated animations. 
they're all just kind of direct to video or streaming. Okay, let me soft pitch you right now. You do an animated MCU film and you treat it, I guess, especially with this multiversal stuff that they're getting into now. I, I haven't watched any of it, but I, I know that, that that's the direction they're going in. But have one of those universes be animated, but do it a la Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Cool world. Have one of our live action people get sucked into this alternate world and they can interact kind of like Space Jam with all these animated characters. Come on. That's Oscar worthy. I guess you'd have to do it with the Spider-Verse because that would make the most sense. So, I mean, I'd watch it, but I wouldn't want it to be a Marvel. I wouldn't want it to be an MCU film. I would want it to be like Spider-Verse where it's kind of its own thing. That's one of the reasons why it was so good. It was just they let these people have at it. Is there anything about Perfect Blue that you think they could have done better or might might be lacking in certain departments? Um, no. Not for me, at least. It's one of those things where um, I can't think of anything personally that I would have done that I think would have made the movie better than it was. If I'm going to be honest with you, I don't usually think of things like that. We're like, oh, how would I have done it? If I'm thinking of that during a movie then that usually means I have a very, very low opinion of what I'm watching. For instance, the last film that I really kind of tore apart like that was The Last Jedi, where I was just thinking, this is how it could have been better. And of course, like after the movie, my mind was just racing with ideas of like, oh, this was a missed opportunity. They could have cut this out. They could have done this. They could have done that. Um, I think Perfect Blue was pretty, because it's not like it was too long, and maybe it would make more sense if you cut things out, but that's part of the charm of the film, is you don't know exactly what you're watching. And then, if they make it too long, then you would just kind of get tired of all the perspective and time shifts. So yeah, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't change a thing about that movie. So is it safe to say that this is in your top 10 anime films? Yes, absolutely. Does it break the top five? It probably does. This director, Satoshi Kon, he has made... Unfortunately, he died, I think, like in his 40s or something. So he died relatively young. He only made four anime flicks and a series. And all four of his movies are spectacular. I haven't seen his series. But Perfect Blue was like his big debut, and it was, um, I mean, this is a hell of a debut movie. I think like all four of his films I would put in my top 10, if not my top 15. Something for the listeners to consider, if they like Perfect Blue, to definitely check out his other stuff then. He did another movie, and this is just, this is just a plug, but I'm not getting paid for it. His movie, Tokyo Godfathers, is one of the best Christmas movies you will ever see. That's probably also in my top five, and it's in my top five Christmas films. Ooh, I love when there's overlap like that. Yeah, it's a beautiful movie. Perfect Blue and Paprika have similar elements, but his movies for the most part are like four different films. And if you watch Paprika, it's interesting because you'll see certain elements of the movie Inception in there. 
So there's another thing that Christopher Nolan ripped off uh, to make that movie. <laughs> no, no, he homaged. He homaged it. Okay, yeah, he homaged it pretty hard. If there was something for me to criticize about Perfect Blue, I'm like you, Andrew. I, I want to stay engaged with the movie as I'm watching it. Let it wash over me. Let me get into it as it's going on. But after the movie's over, and in the context of doing a review show, something that needled me when I thought about it afterward, in the course of the movie we see Mima uh, do some things in her pursuit of becoming an actress that just is so intense, it makes me want to know what exactly is motivating her. Why does she want to cast aside the pop idol thing and go into acting? And I actually, before we started recording, I went back to the movie and watched a bit of the beginning to try to see if I had missed something because that's always possible with subtitled movies is you're so focused on reading it, sometimes you're not necessarily thinking about what you're reading and how it affects the plot and the characters. And there's one line where she says she's on a phone call to her mother right after she announces as part of her pop trio that she's done her last show and she's going into acting. She says that being a pop idol is suffocating and she needs to put it aside. And I kind of want a little bit more than that that I don't think the movie really goes back to any of those motivations. Can you think of uh, anything that I've missed as far as what the big deal is that would drive her to do some of the more extreme things she does in the pursuit of becoming an actress? You know, not that I can think of off the top of my head, but I will also say that those types of things don't bother me when I'm watching a movie. Sometimes... For me, it's like, I don't need an explanation as to why it was suffocating. I can just say like, okay, they thought it was suffocating. I can move on. I don't know. I just don't think that way because I feel like it's too much of a rabbit hole for a lot of things because like, not to reference maybe a, um, a movie that not everyone has a great opinion of, but in Star Wars Episode One, <laughs> in Episode One, there's like this line where... Um, like, after speaking with the... I don't remember exactly where it was in the movie. It's been so long since I've seen it. But, like, Obi-Wan says to Qui-Gon at one point, oh, you'd be on the council if you, you know, listened to them or if you followed their orders. I mean, you could you could go down that rabbit hole of, oh, well, what did Qui-Gon not listen to? What makes him such a rogue? Like, why is he like that? But you just accept it and move on. He just does things on his own terms. And I think that with this one, it's just, it's suffocating. Okay, let's go. In the defense of the storytelling of the movie, it does move at such a strong pace. I don't feel like it meanders much, except for when it wants you to take a moment to breathe and, and consider the character's situation in between the crazy stuff that happens. If they did go more into that, with the rest of the movie being as fast-paced and hard to watch in points, if they delved more into the character stuff, it, it might stick out and not quite marry with the rest of it. 
Yeah, I think the movie was pretty perfectly paced, and so I think that's another reason why I don't need extra information. So that was Perfect Blue. Any uh, final thoughts on it? Go ahead and watch it, but remember, it's technically speaking, it's it's a pretty hard R, so don't don't go into it thinking it's going to be... Neither one of these movies with Perfect Blue or Jinro are really easy watches, so just be prepared. Especially Perfect Blue. Yeah, especially Perfect Blue. If we have two people that are listening that are thinking, oh, um, you know, we both haven't been exposed to anime and let's give it a shot. Perfect Blue, I don't think, would make a good date night movie unless you have a really strong relationship and you know each other's tolerances for certain uh, things. Yeah, there are a few things in the movie, one scene in particular, and I'm going to say air quotes because it'll make sense if you watch it. There is an quote rape scene end quote and it is pretty intense but I, I put the quotes there for a reason it's you have to watch it to understand but at the same time if you don't want to like i it's not essential to the story but in, in a way it's i don't know it's hard to explain i will say this i went to go see it in theaters with your mom no with my girlfriend and we had been together for a while at that point I had forgotten about that scene. How do you forget that scene? Because <laughs> it had been like 10 or 12 years since I had seen it. The only thing I really remembered was the guy getting stabbed in the eye, a uh, trigger warning. I didn't remember that, the, the rape scene. And so we're sitting in the theater watching it, and I'm just like, oh my god, what have I brought her to? And then like, I think after the movie, I apologized. I was like, dude, I'm so sorry. I completely forgot about that. She's like, oh, don't worry about it. You know, it was... It was what it was, and it's just, you know, she was able to tolerate it, but it's, for some it might be, it, I think it also helps that it's animated, it's not a real human, it's just a drawn human. It definitely has some sexual assault content in the film, so, yeah, it's not a date night movie. Yeah, and it was so awkward when you're at that screening with your girlfriend, and you were just about to cut a hole in the bottom of your popcorn with that scene started, and you thought, mm, damn, I picked the wrong time to think to do this. I guess I won't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't... No funny business during that scene, boys. No. Ugh. Yeah, that was hard to watch. There was a point to it in the greater context of the movie, so I give it that. There was a point, and it had those little breather moments here and there. It was pretty terrible, but it was, it was definitely a manageable terrible. That's why I like to always do final thoughts, even though you might think we've already said enough. Once in a while, we forget an important detail. Yeah, that's a pretty important detail. It's intense. This is the second part of an episode, a bigger episode of anime in general. This one's movies. The other one I'm going to do is shows. Besides the number of hours to tell a story, can you think of any differences between anime movies versus shows? Sometimes it's hard to tell what age range it's meant for. And I'm looking specifically at My Hero Academia when I say this, because you would figure that it's a kid's show, the way it looks and the subject matter, you know, just a superhero high school. 
but there's some pretty graphic violence in it. There's some pretty perverted stuff here and there where it kind of crosses like an almost mature audience threshold. I mean, there's no like nudity, but some of the violence, like there's a dude who gets, who legitimately just blows up on screen. I feel like with Western animation, you kind of know what you're getting into. You know it's meant for kids. Sure, they might sneak some adult jokes in there, like Shrek or whatever. But you know what to expect. With anime, it's one of those things where you might get into it thinking it's going to be wholesome or more family-friendly. But it can shock you with how they do it. I'll give another example. There's an anime called Food Wars, which is about a culinary high school. But this is a show where they have orgasms when they eat great food. And it's animated in a way where it's all like, oh, you know, I I ate this bit of a crab dish, and so now crabs are pinching me all over when I'm in my underwear. Or (laughs) it's these weird images at times or they're just their clothes explode off of them and they're all making the noises and they're they're like oh oh you know stuff like that (laughs) and it's just it's about food you'd figure that would be family friendly but it's just not it's it's smut about a culinary high school and cooking competitions it is one of those things where with anime be prepared that you're not going to get exactly what you think you're going to get Or it might be worth doing a little bit of extra research on a show before you watch it. I think more kind of looking at a content guide might help you um, instead of like a plot type of research. But I think that's just because they have different limits over there. Like we kind of, we do shoehorn our stuff kind of into more of like, okay, this is for kids, so it can't have this. And this is for adults, so it can have all of this. They kind of cross those boundaries sometimes from episode to episode where it's really family friendly for, you know, 13, 15 episodes. But then once the fighting starts happening, it it shows you kind of like, oh, man, like the heroes in my hero, they're getting just really messed up and beaten and bloodied. As opposed to like, you know, over here with our comic book shows, you know, they might get roughed up and their clothes tear a little bit. But um, no, these heroes get shot and it's like bloody. It's, you know. It's weird in the way that they make it more varied in content. Is there anything about anime that bugs you in particular, or maybe you'd like to see a bit more done in a slightly different way than some things you might not like? It's mainly like cultural differences. I feel like if you watch a comedy anime, they're a lot different than the comedy ones. Like, I think it's just the sense of humors are different because sometimes the the per what we would consider to be the pervy animes they're using that to be funny and so for us it might be like cringy where it's just like okay i get it you know he tripped and fell on someone's boobs like uh i've seen that in so many anime yeah i mean that's the thing it's like the whole compromising position and just everyone's it's their version of slipping on a banana (laughs) Uh, essentially yeah Like, for that, it might be a little bit weird, because, like, for us, we don't find that... It's not always funny, you know, from, I think, a Western perspective. I guess that's where just research comes in. It's just, you have to know your personal limits and what you like and don't like. 
So moving on to Jinro, the Wolf Brigade. Andrew, tell us about it. It takes place in an alternate reality, Japan, 10, 12 so years after the nuke dropped and World War II was over. It's essentially a police state now where there's the police force trying to quell all the unrest, and there's also something called the special unit, which are these dudes that look like the bad guys from the Killzone video game series with special technology, and they're also there to quell the terrorists. The main character is a special unit, I guess you'd call him an officer, uh, named uh, Fuse, and he has a traumatic event happen, and he begins a relationship with the sister of a woman he watched die during an uprising. Why did you recommend this one for an anime newcomer? Because it is, in a way, it's kind of a more, I'll say, American story. It's not what you would consider to be a typical anime type thing. There aren't any superhumans. There's nothing weird about it. No magical girls. No aliens. It's just kind of this dystopian past, essentially, where it's pretty... It has, like, those sci-fi elements of, like, this special police force with extra special weapons and technology that shouldn't really exist back then. But being alternate history gets away with it. Yeah, you can get away with it. I feel like it's palatable in the sense that it's also animated in a way where the people, even more than Perfect Blue, look like humans. The faces are very realistic. It's great animation, honestly. It, it's a bummer. Like, I'm also going to say, <laughs> this, movie's, this movie is a huge bummer. But I think the story is really good. I also will admit it, it dips in the middle. Like, there is kind of a lull. And there's like a, a little Red Riding Hood allegory throughout the film. Like, it's a little heavy-handed here and there. But in terms of translating animation to live action, this is something that could easily be translated. And I also think that makes it a little more palatable in terms of a newcomer, because you can picture it easily crossing that threshold. This felt very grounded. And it's another one that it's grounded so much. What would this have been live action? And then I read into it a bit, and I guess they did do a live-action version some years after the original came out. Hmm. I wonder how it was. Probably not as good. Probably. How many remakes are better than the original? You are right about that. So, yeah, probably want to watch the animated one. What was the best scene or best character for you in this? I think... The best character would be the main character. He's just kind of like the guy. He's one of those quiet anime protagonists that if you continue on watching more and more, you'll see more like him. But he's an interesting character in the sense that you think you got a feel for him and then maybe you didn't have as good of a feel for him as you thought. His role in the story changes as things go on where oh he's this guy with ptsd and he's trying to 
maybe atone for what happened, you know, which was at the beginning of the movie, he freezes and there's this girl with a bomb and he doesn't just shoot her to stop her from pulling the bomb. He, you know, he's doing what we would consider to be kind of like the humane thing where he's like, hey, you know, why are you doing this? He, he refuses to shoot. But then you start learning the behind the scenes thing about what's going on with the story. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. So he's doing this. Oh, I see. Oh, wait a minute. He's actually doing this. Oh. And that's where the depressing thing comes in. I'd say that he's the most interesting character just because you don't quite know where he goes, where his allegiances lie. And then the best scene in the film. Man, that's a really tough one. The whole beginning sequence is really, really great. Because there's action in the movie. If you want to call it action, it really is more just straight violence. It's not cool or pleasant to watch. It's a slower-paced movie than Perfect Blue. And it can be a bit to get through the middle just because it does slow down a lot. But I think it's a worthwhile watch. I preferred the, the love interest character because when she's not there... The main character, he is so flat and measured that it's nice to see her pull something a little different out of him, because otherwise it would just be him jogging on that training ground all day. True, true. It did feel a little slow in parts, because I was, I was comparing this to some of the slower live-action movies that I like, and I was trying to figure out why is this animated slow movie getting on my nerves in parts where a live-action slow movie wouldn't? And I arrived at the conclusion it has to do with the fundamentals of animation. If you have these quiet, slow moments, and nobody's moving, and really nothing in frame is moving, when you do that in live-action, there's still minute movement you still, in the back of your head, know that these people exist and, and they're probably thinking really hard right now and they're melancholy or whatever it is. But when it's animated, if there isn't movement, then you're just looking at a painting. And it kind of took me out in a few spots because then I'm just looking at a frozen image going, hmm, yeah, this is just a drawing right now. There's no life to it. Hmm. No, you're right about that. It is a, an animation thing, especially in anime. Like, they do tend to do shots like that sometimes. Not all the time, but um, where there's, like, not a whole lot of movement going on, if any. Yeah, it's a little much sometimes in this movie. It, it, it could have been edited down, but not by too much, I think. And with the amount of Little Red Riding Hood stuff that's in this movie, I mean, isn't it enough that they, they go line by line in one version of the storybook? But they also have them meeting at a museum, and you see wolves in the background, and then he's dreaming about wolves. And then they talk about the wolf brigade, and they call the girls holding the bombs Little Red Riding Hoods. All that stuff, it's so on the nose that it, it pretty much telegraphs the ending of the movie. It does. So I will give that to you. I do think they went a little too over the top with it. But even with those things in there, yeah, like you can you can see the ending coming, but it's um 
it's kind of hard to say because it, it does make it more predictable because I think they do go over the top with it. I think that's a very valid criticism. I actually thought halfway through the movie, before they really explained the conspiracy that was going on in the background, for a second I thought, oh, maybe they're hammering this allusion to that story so much because ultimately the characters, it'll subvert that in a way. We're building up this expectation based on all the connections to this other work. And then they might pull the rug out from under me at the end, where they go, oh, you thought it was going to end this way because the other story ended this way? Well, no. (laughs) But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's a depressing movie, really, at the end of it. Like, you kind of do want your expectations to be subverted and then, like, not do what you think it's going to be. But it's exactly, it's exactly that. And maybe that's, Maybe that's one of the points where it's kind of like, oh, you know, um, like, oh, it's just you can't break the chain, you know, whatever it is. Even if it does end in a really depressing way, it feels like it's part of its integrity. There's the part of me that wants it to end in a happier way. But even if I know it's going to end the bad way, it feels like it's, it's earned that and it makes sense in the context of what they're doing. Yeah, it definitely ends in the bad way. (laughs) (laughs) Just know, have a tissue or have a pet nearby so you can pet them religiously afterward and feel better. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. And that concludes my two-part discussion on anime. If you haven't listened to part one, where Stacy and I discuss anime shows, specifically Paranoia Agent and High School of the Dead... I highly recommend you go check that out. 